Marini's Media. Totally Football Show. Today, it's another Rona Stop Play special with news, the quiz, bits and bobs and retro fun as we journey back to a time when Pards was king, when Balotelli was a thing, when Harry's dog was so bling he had a bank account. 2011-2012, Martin Tyler, Gurgle Gogo on Aguero and so much more in this Totally Football Show in association with Paddy Bowers. Neighbourly thoughts there from Nirvana. And hey, listener, if you're busy commuting to work because you have an important job keeping us all going, well, we salute you. Or if you're just shavu with the home baking and yesterday's pyjamas still, it's a big hello from us all too. When I say us, I mean Michael Cox. Hi, James. Matt Davis-Adams. Hello, James. And inspiration for Rob Brydon's man-trapped-in-a-box voice, Daniel Story, also here with us. Hi, James. Hello, Daniel. Marvellous. Don't know how you do that. Uh, Daniel, I know you've been writing about the Newcastle takeover, and in a second you can fill us in where we are on that. But first of all, a quick salute to the Leeds legend Norman Hunter, who passed away on Friday after battling coronavirus, key member of Don Revy's squad for over 600 appearances there at Leeds, a member, of course, of England's World Cup squad as well in 66. Also, the inaugural winner of the PFA Player of the Year Award in 73-74, the first of only six defenders to win it. Here he is in action. Hunter, what tremendous confidence there all along the penalty area past three Sunderland players by Norman Hunter. And Hunter coming up fast to drive it. Oh, and what a goal. What a goal by Norman Hunter. Big news last time we were talking here on the Totally Football Show was the prospective takeover of Newcastle, largely by Saudi funds. You've been writing about this. Yeah, I, it, it seems now that the only box left to tick is the Premier League ratification, which I think is almost certain to happen. Uh, I, I know that a number of human rights organisations have spoken out and expressed their misgivings over allowing Saudi funding in a Premier League club, um, but I don't think that'll make any difference. I think it'll go through. Mike Holland was just expressing my own misgivings, um, probably reflecting the views of those human rights organisations that it seems a little bit depressing that football is prepared to welcome uh, money, any money, no matter who it comes from and no matter how they earned it and no matter their behaviour whilst enjoying that wealth. And I was actually pleasantly surprised at the reaction from supporters, which is at least conflicted. I'm sure not all. I'm sure I'm very happy that all the sort of spurious 11s in the newspapers that, about how Newcastle will line up next season whenever it starts. But some are genuinely concerned that while they're happy to celebrate Mike Ashley leaving, this is hardly swapping bad guy for good guy. Right. It does put Mike Ashley in perspective of at least half supporters would rather have a murderous human rights abusing uh, dictatorship from the East taking over their club. <laughs> Indeed, yeah, there was a, a glorious tweet which I quoted in the article that said, although we might assume that Mike Ashley would be prepared to carry out a genocide in Yemen, it's also probably fair to say that he hasn't done so yet. 
All right, then. Well, let's move on to happier thoughts. And uh, lots of people getting in touch about our ongoing post-football careers discussion, which is, of course, getting more and more relevant to all of us right now, post-football <laughs> careers. Uh, Nippon says it's not a post-football career per se, but is ex-Swedish international footballer Elin Ekblomback the most qualified professional footballer ever? Currently, he's playing in the Swedish First Division. Not currently, but yeah. And also, he's a scientist, an epidemiologist. Uh, topically enough. Topically, yeah, good. Yeah. I mean, on the subject of players who retire and they go on to completely different things, Thomas Graveson is now a multimillionaire and a bona fide poker player on the actual circuit, I believe. So is Teddy Sheringham, isn't he? He's yes. He's a professional poker player too. I, I, I once did a, uh, a VC poker cup uh, down in Teddington and uh, Teddy was very much uh, part of that. On his home turf as well in Teddington, one would assume. Is that right? Is he from Teddington? No, just because his name's Teddy. I see. Right. <laughs> also, also in the post-football career category, Stuart Ripley, who you will recall winning the Premier League at Blackburn. Do you know what he's doing now? He's a lawyer who's been involved in a few fairly high-profile FA cases, I believe. That's right. He was part of the FA disciplinary panel that found John Terry guilty of using racist language towards Anton Ferdinand in 2012, uh, the season that we're going to be discussing very, very shortly. Interesting. Uh, Kevin Kyle, who was a striker for Sunderland and Scotland, is involved in ship maintenance for offshore uh, oil rig workers in Shetland. Nigel Spink, goalkeeper for Villa in the 80s and 90s, runs a courier company. Jody Craddock, I wasn't familiar with this. Jody Craddock, who for ages uh, at Wolves, captain, of course, of that side, is now a well-regarded artist. He says, my aim is to be regarded as an artist who used to be pretty good at football rather than an ex-footballer who likes to paint. Uh, he had a he had an exhibition called La Bellezza della Fusione in Lutterworth, Leicestershire in uh, November 2015. I missed that. Any others you want to nominate at this point? Um, I've got Vicente Lizarazu, remember him? French fullback, used to play for Bayern mm. Munich, uh, became a European champion at Brazilian Jiu-Jitsu. Of course he did, yeah. Uh, and Thomas Brolin sells shoes and hoovers on the internet and also released a single with Dr. Albert. There is a the clip of Brolin's goal against England in um, Euro 92 as part of the music video. Uh, oh, brilliant. him sat in the back of a limousine uh, not singing very much what's that song called Matt uh, Friends in Need right Daniel anything to contribute on this topic before we move on a shout for David May uh, Champions League winner and now current wine importer oh um, yeah I mean I'm probably doing very well out of this current crisis I imagine absolutely absolutely uh, good that is enough of all that then eh Daniel on to the reason we're all here the last round of our knockout quiz. Carl v. Sasha, mano a mano. You're listening to The Totally Football Show in association with Paddy Power. Into Totally Time, everybody. Our quest to determine our number one football expert. Much drama last time out with the tiebreaker between Emma and Jack. We've tweaked the format for that a little bit, but everything else is still the same. So let's meet our contestants. Here's the Ivan Drago of the Totally Football Show with a steroid enhanced body and state engineered mind. He's been putting in his research. Yippee Kaye, Mother Russia, it's Sasha Sashnik Gurionov. Hi, Dad! 
Sasha, welcome to the Intertotally. Hello, James. How are you? I'm well. I'm pumped after that. Excellent. Sasha, so good to have you on board. Will you be Gurianov for a place in the quarterfinals? That's the question we're going to be determining today. Let's hear about your opponent. His opponent bringing the suave and the sagacity all the way from Southampton. Don't you dare tell him there's no director of football. It is indeed Carl, the cerebral assassin, Anchor. Carl, very suave intro music there. What was that? That was Triple H's uh, entrance music. The wrestler. Uh, wrestling. The cerebral assassin. The king of kings, he calls himself. Right. Excellent. How are you feeling? I'm feeling good. I've baked some brownies and cool. I'm ready to, to get into some quizness. Right. Well, if you can't stand the heat in this quiz, you know what you have to do. Let's start off then with the special subject. What's your one going to be, Carl? Uh, I'm going to stick with what I know. So that's Southampton's Premier League season 2019 to 2020. So half a season at Saints. All right, excellent. What about you, Sasha? Euro 88, USSR's last hurrah. Right, OK, excellent. Well, Carl, you're up first with Southampton, 2019-2020. Let's start with question one. Danny Ings has 15 Premier League goals, but who is Southampton's next highest goal scorer in the league? Uh, that would be James Ward-Prowse. That is correct, with four goals. Question two. Southampton were knocked out of the Carabao Cup by Manchester City and the FA Cup by Tottenham, but which three teams did they beat in those competitions? Um, in the Carabao Cup, it was mm-hmm. first it was Fulham, then it was Portsmouth. And, and in the FA it, Cup? And in the FA Cup, first they knocked out uh, Huddersfield. That is correct. Question three. Who did Jose Mourinho call an idiot after Southampton beat Tottenham 1-0 on New Year's Day? I would like to say goalkeeping coach Andrew Sparks. I'd advise you to do just that because that's the correct answer. Question four. Who was the first team Southampton beat after the 9-0 defeat to Leicester? Watford 2-1. Correct, Carl. And this for a perfect score on your specialist subject. Question five. Two of Southampton's squad this season have Champions League winner medals. Which two? That'd be Ryan Bertrand, who won it with Chelsea. And... Uh, oh. I'm... Gonna take a pun on Ori Romeo. Correct, Carl. Five out of five. <laughs> no pressure. No pressure. Well, a strong start then, but what can Sasha do to match that? Sasha, are you ready then for your questions on USSR at Euro 88? Yes, I am, James. Excellent. Question one then. Which former winners of the European Championships did the USSR knock out in qualifying? France. Correct. Question two. Which player in the USSR's squad was nicknamed the Iron Curtain? The Iron Curtain? Hmm. It's obviously um, a foreign nickname for one of the players. Right. I'd say Alek Kuznetsov. No, it's Rinat Dasayev. Ooh, okay. Question three. Who was the only player to score more than one goal at the tournament for the USSR? Alek Pratasov. That's right. They needed a better pair of strikers. <laughs> <laughs> Question four. Two of the USSR squad played in England at some point in their career. Which two? 
so Sergei Baltacha. And who was the other? Um, Sergei Alenikov. Sergei Gotsmayov. Oh, Gotsmayov, of course. Mm. Question five. Which name is missing from the list of scorers for the USSR at the competition? Rats, Protosov, Alenikov, Pasulko, Litovchenko. Mikhailichenko? Is correct. Is correct. So at the end of your special subject, you scored three out of five, Sasha. Bit of work to do in the general knowledge, but we've seen comebacks like that before. Definitely. I'm uh, up for the second leg. Excellent. Very, very good. Carl, you're confident? Just going to do what got me to the dance. We'll see you later on then for the general knowledge round. Looking forward to round two of that a little bit later on. But right now, listeners, we're going to head back in time through the annals of the Premier League for another of the most significant seasons ever played. And this time around, it's 2011-2012. That goal. That finale, that commentary. Aguero! But the 2011-2012 season was about much more than just Martin Tyler's last-minute Sergio Aguero, as we discover next in Zombie Football. I'm Jose Mourinho. I know a thing or two about being special. Football pundits who actually understand management, special. Winning the daily jackpot on Paddy Power Games, not special. Understood, Jose. Yes, someone wins an average £40,000 jackpot every single day. So if you win, don't think you're special. Daily Jackpots by Paddy Power Games. Jackpots must be awarded by 11pm and vary from day to day. Jackpot is shared with other operators available on selected games. T's and C's at paddypower.com. 18plusbegumbleware.org. Listeners, we want to tell you about a beautifully simple way to showcase and sell your photography. PicFair is used by over 150,000 people worldwide. It's a free platform that allows anyone to sell their photos from complete amateurs like me to seasoned professionals, probably like some of you out there in Podland. And PicFair is so simple. All you do is upload your photos, name your price, and those pics will appear on your personal online photography store. Your photographs will also be listed on PicFair's central marketplace, where images taken by people who've never sold a picture before have been published by The Guardian, Time Out and Rough Guides, and they've even been used on the front cover of National Geographic. Alongside digital downloads, customers can also purchase your photos as beautiful frame prints and canvases. And whether you sell them through your own store or the marketplace, PicFair will produce the prints for you in high-quality labs and take care of all of the shipping. So if you've got time on your hands and you're wondering what to do with all of the brilliant photos you've got lying around on your hard drive or camera roll, go to pickfair.com and sign up for free today. That's P-I-C-F-A-I-R.com. Pickfair, a new home for your photography. On Spotify, smart speaker and podcast platforms everywhere, this is the Totally Football Show from Muddy Knees Media. So, news-wise, you had an Icelandic volcano blowing up and Libyan leader Muammar Gaddafi bowing out. In culture, the Harry Potter movie series was also ending, while a new show called Game of Thrones was just getting started, although for Sean Bean, it too was already done. Bastard. In the football, it was the season of Henri's return to Arsenal, of John Terry telling Anton Ferdinand what he didn't call him, of Carlos Tevez's mid-season break and Harry's tax confusion. Plus, some new faces in the Premier League. Venkis at Blackburn, 
QPR and Andre Villas-Boas. Above all, though, it was the season of a title tussle that went to the last kick of the last game of the campaign. Michael, what a great choice. What a season. Yeah, very memorable. I mean, clearly the, the final day is probably the most memorable day in the history of the Premier League. But the overall season was fantastic as well. There were some great storylines involving Arsenal, who obviously completely bombed at the start of the season with that 8-2 loss to Manchester United, but rose up through the league to finish third, amazingly, ahead of a Tottenham side who very briefly were in the Champions League race. Um, so, yeah, it was a very good season all around. Do you mean they were in the title race? Uh, Tottenham. Yeah, there was a... Um, people kind of forget this, but there was a 3-2 defeat away at Manchester City in late January where it had been two all and uh, Jermaine Defoe missed a very presentable chance near the end of the game uh, to make it 3-2 to Tottenham. If they'd won that, I believe they would have gone uh, two points behind both Manchester clubs with about 17, 18 games remaining. So look, they, they would have been third favourites, but um, it was remarkable that they managed to finish 20 points behind them, having briefly looked as if they could properly challenge. title race was all about the Mancunians and we'll come to them later on. But let's start in London, where Andre Villas-Burs wasn't the only brash young man with an exotic triple name bowling into Stamford Bridge. Was he Matt Davis-Adams? <laughs> well, at the time, <laughs> at the time he was, I was I was just Matt Davis back in those, uh, those oh, days. Right. But yeah, that was my first season commentating uh, on Chelsea, so it was quite a good one. You know, the usual mixture of... Uh, tumult, controversy and um, some success at the end. It's kind of been that way ever since. Well, I mean, a fascinating season to start with. You've got Andre Villas-Boas, who was such a character uh, in his <laughs> tight trousers and his sideline pirouettes and all, all this stuff. Uh, he then gets fired and you bring in Roberto Di Matteo, who only goes and wins the FA Cup and the Champions League. Yeah, quite incredible. I mean, Villas-Boas had, had come in off the back of an amazing season with Porto where they, they won the league unbeaten, they won the cup and they won the Europa League. So he was very much the the hot young thing in kind of European management. And I think maybe Chelsea thought they were getting Jose Mourinho Mark too, but you know, he didn't have the the cult of personality that Mourinho did. And I think he probably also suffered from the fact that he had worked as Mourinho's video analyst during his first spell as Chelsea manager. And that was how a lot of the players who were still there knew him. And I think he sensed that and tried to impose his authority early on. You know, the stories I heard were that he uh, was quite blunt with the likes of Czech and Terry and Drogba and Lampard. And of course, at that time, they held the majority of the power in the Chelsea dressing room and, and the thing to do would have been to get them on side rather than leave Frank Lampard on the substitutes bench, tell Drogba that he probably wasn't going to be your first choice striker for this season and uh, employ a high line when you've got John Terry, one of the best but slowest defenders the Premier League has ever seen. He was still riding off the off the crest of the wave of that brilliant season at Porto, but I think if he had his time again, he, he probably would have, um, would have approached it differently and, and hence he didn't see out the season. More recently seen behind the wheel of a rally car doing the Dakar and uh, this current season in charge and doing pretty well with Marseille. All right, uh, Arsenal, Fabregas and Nasri had left. Nasri right at the start of the season. They still had Robin Van Persie, who turned out to be that season's top scorer with 30 goals. I noticed he scored 40% of all the Gunners' goals. Does this make them the team in Premier League history that relied most on a single player? 
No, I think you'd have Southampton with Matt Letizia and to a lesser extent Danny Ings this season and also from this season. You'd maybe put Grealish as the same level of importance to Villa, but right. I certainly think Letizia more than, than Van Persie. OK. As you mentioned, Michael, the season started badly. August when they went to Old Trafford and got done 8-2. Young, it's eight. And he scored two absolute beauties. In my mind, this was kind of the day that the end times began for Arsene Wenger. Is that fair? Yeah, I mean, I think the most damning thing was not necessarily the result, but the fact that after the game in his press conference, Sir Alex Ferguson was acting like he was really sorry for Wenger and saying, well, you know, we got a bit lucky. 8-2 is probably a bit of a, you know, charitable reflection upon our efforts. I mean, it was a dreadful performance. I mean, I'm... There's so many things that went badly for Arsenal that day. The thing that sticks in my mind was, I think it was the debut of Carl Jenkinson, who'd just been signed from Charlton. He'd actually been out on loan in the conference the previous season. Um, and to go from that to having to make your debut uh, away at Old Trafford was just clearly so daunting for him. I think he got sent off towards the end of the game and it was probably, you know, quite a good thing that he did because he was having such a terrible afternoon it kind of summed up the fact that Arsenal were just a bit of a shambles at that time they didn't really have a plan for you know how they were going to replace Fabregas and and Nasri the funny thing is it was maybe a good thing that Arsenal lost so heavily because Wenger went out and he he bought five players and a bit of a panic buy on deadline day and deadline day was something he didn't really do until that point those players were a mixed bag but two of the positives were Permer to Saka and Mikel Arteta, who not only shored up the defence and the midfield respectively, but are now obviously in place as uh, Arsenal's manager, in Arteta's case, and the head of the academy, in Mertesacker's case. And you wonder whether those signings would have happened if it wasn't for that result. I think Arteta probably would have, but uh, yeah, certainly turned out well in the long run. Arsenal also brought back Thierry Henry in the course of this season. With limited effectiveness, it was a, a crazy campaign. Apart from that 8-2, they also beat Chelsea, Matt, 5-3. They beat Spurs, 5-2 in a famous North London derby. They beat Blackburn Rovers, 7-1, and also lost to Blackburn, 4-3, and ended up in third place. Speaking of Blackburn, meanwhile, this was the season of the Venkies takeover of the former Premier League champions and Rovers players scrapping over chicken in this advert. The taste that brings the English Premier League team, Blackburn Rovers to India. Blackburn Rovers, proudly owned by Venkies. Yep, that happened. And unlike the chicken, Blackburn went down and didn't come back up. They had the um, the case of the chicken that was released onto the pitch in May, didn't they, in protest. The game against Wigan it was a chicken kind of wrapped in a Blackburn flag that came onto the pitch. I remember the Wigan keeper, Ali Al-Habzi, kind of shepherding it away. That was um, quite a weird moment. Elsewhere, back in London, QPR were back up top after 15 years and they would have a big part to play. A campaign that featured Neil Warnock to begin with and then Mark Hughes subsequently after results like that 6-0 defeat to Fulham, a game which... So Adel Tarab subbed off at half-time and then getting a London bus home rather than sticking around to watch the second half. <laughs> One of my favourite Premier League memories of all time, that. <laughs> Up at Newcastle, meanwhile, it was also Alan Pardew's best ever Premier League season, so far anyway. Uh, <laughs> under Pardew. <laughs> well, but under Pardew and with a team that, uh, thanks to the recruiting skills of Alan Carr's dad, Graham, featured Demba Bar, Papi Sisse, Johan Kabai and Cech Tiote. Newcastle finishing in fifth place, narrowly missing out on the Champions League, but earning their visionary boss that eight-year deal on Tyneside. 
Hurrah. And how much of that was down to Papi Cisse? I, I sort of remembered when when first started looking at this. Oh, he was quite good. Looked into it. 13 goals in 14 games he scored in the Premier League wow. after he arrived, including two at Chelsea, which are up there with the best goals that I think I've ever seen in life. So, yeah, he did really well for them. Cisse. Papi Cisse with another blinding strike. Still going now, still playing in Turkey, still banging them in. That that Newcastle season was peak Alan. I mean, it was peak Alan Pardew quite literally because it was as high as he's ever finished. But it was also they just went on these mad runs. They were unbeaten until November the nineteenth, which is remarkable for a Newcastle team. Then they took two points from six games. They won six in a row in March, April, before losing 4-0 at Wigan. It was such an odd team. It was a collection of, purely th- through their scouting department, it was a collection of individuals that, that Pardew managed to make into a team. And he has always been good when tails are up and he's telling players that he's their best mate and that everything's going to be all right. It's when things start going wrong in every one of his jobs that you know that things go badly and eventually they did it at Newcastle. But, but given that he's currently down the wrong end of the Eredivisie and given where Newcastle are as well, it, is his career due a, a bit of a reappraisal, do you think? I, I think it was just right place, right time for various people. And I think Mike Ashley was enjoying some goodwill after helping to get Newcastle back in the Premier League with his money. Graham Carr did brilliantly in that summer, but fell pretty spectacularly from grace with subsequent transfer windows. Pardew did the same. And, you know, the players in that team never really clicked as, again as they did in that season. It just I think it was just a you know a, a very much a perfect storm. Yeah, I think one of the things that made Newcastle overachieve was just how many great goals they scored. Obviously Matt's referenced that incredible Cisse swerving shot against Chelsea, but there was also Ben Arthur scored a fantastic goal where he ran past basically the whole Wigan side. The three 0 victory over Manchester United, I think on New Year's Day Kabaye scored a free kick from about 35 yards that beat De Gea. Just incredible. And you look through the stats, this was probably slightly before the expected goal era. So I guess a lot of people probably preferred it to uh, the expected goal era. But I think when you look at the stats from Newcastle, the reason they won so many games, often by one goal, was just brilliant long-range shooting rather than anything that Pardew was doing in particular. Well, finishing just ahead of Newcastle, in fourth place were Spurs. Spurs with Emmanuel Adebayor, Spurs with Gareth Bale, Luka Modric and Raphael van der Vaart. Spurs, as you mentioned, who were in the title race right up until February. There was the defeat against Man City, but what else happened to them? Why did they fall away? One of the things I remember about this campaign for Spurs was the relationship between Defoe and Adebayor, which started really well. I mean, it was a kind of... You don't think of either of them as particularly selfless as forwards, but I remember in their first few games, they they combined really well. And then there was an incident, I think, away at Newcastle, where it was something like two all, and one of them didn't pass to the other for a late chance. And this seemed to cause a bit of a rift between them, and that kind of led to their relationship, I think, going awry. I think the other factor was, this was a season where Gareth Bale was kind of in transition. So the season before, he'd been excellent as a kind of outside left, you know, going down the left, crossing the ball, those two games against Inter, I think, were particularly famous. The season after was when he switched to the right and was cutting inside and, and scoring from long range. But this was a season where he was kind of trying to find his position. So there was a game away at Norwich at Christmas where he scored two really good goals. Well, the second one in particular, a dribble through the centre. But there was a few games where he was struggling really to find his best role. And 
I think, you know, aside from the odd performance, he scored two great goals away at City. I don't think he was as constant a force as in the, uh, the two seasons either side. There were also questions over their manager and whether potentially there was a breakdown after a couple of things that happened in spring. One was the fact that Fabio Capello left the England job and Harry was very much seen as his likely replacement. The other was the court case. Tottenham boss Harry Redknapp and former Portsmouth chairman Milan Mandaric have appeared in court on charges of tax evasion. Yep, Harry Redknapp in court accused of tax evasion, uh, a case that he successfully fought by revealing that he can't use a computer or spell or write letters and that any suspicious accounts in Monaco, am I getting this right, were actually operated by his dog. And... Uh, <laughs> That's all right then, I think, said the judge, and, 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 and off we went. But the damage <laughs> potentially was done. Was, it, was, was that it, Daniel? I don't think the court case played a role. I think the England job was, knowing Harry Redknapp as we do, I suspect the lure of the England job was far more of a factor than the court case. He was acquitted before their terrible end-of-season run. They took 16 points from the last 13 games, having been 10 points ahead of Arsenal with a much better goal difference. They eventually slipped to fourth and and as we know because of Chelsea's Champions League win missed out on the Champions League therefore I think it was it was a case of a little bit of fatigue I honestly think Redknapp is similar to to what I've said about Pardew in that when things are going well it's brilliant and when things start to turn he can sometimes find it hard to address that mood but yeah I suspect it was the lure of that England job that had very much got into his head he didn't make any secret of the fact he wanted it put it that way so Chelsea cost them twice, Matt. First with the whole John Terry, Anton Ferdinand thing, which eventually led to Capella leaving, which then possibly turned Harry's head. And secondly, by going and winning the Champions League. You know, we'll get onto that Champions League win in Munich when we do the Champions League season in our sister show. But we should just mention that. What an incredible run that was under Roberto Di Matteo. Yeah, it was amazing. I mean, on the Spurs thing, you'd say they cost them thrice because they beat them 5-1 in the FA Cup semi-final as well. Um, but yeah, the Champions League run was sensational. It was all kind of hinged in in a lot of Chelsea supporters' minds on a, on a goal-line clearance made by Ashley Cole away to Napoli, which um, it would have made it 4-0, I think, at the time to Napoli, which would have been impossible to come back from. That was in the last 16, and, and they got a 4-1 a after-extra-time victory, which was one of Di Matteo's First games in charge and then um, Benfica and, and Barcelona and then, yeah, beating, beating Bayern on penalties in their own backyard without four players out suspended and, and with two centre-halves playing with about one hamstring between them. Yeah, old Chelsea player missing the penalty in extra time. Any kind of narrative you want to add? What we thought was Didier Drogba's last kick of a ball for Chelsea being the, the winning penalty it was um, pretty special. Yeah, it's the greatest night in Chelsea's history. Champions of Europe at last. They've beaten Bayern in their own backyard and at their own game on penalties. This, this really was the season for incredible commentary, though, wasn't it? Because not only did you have the Aguero, you also had Gary Neville's, whatever you want to describe it, on Fernando Torres against Barcelona. And then another great Tylerism, which Akbar Chowdhury uh, cites. Uh, this gem uh, on the Sunderland's G. Sessegnon. He's round the goalkeeper, he's done it! Absolutely incredible! It ain't over till it's over! It ain't over till it's over, which was, yeah, a really nice line, but it, it pales into comparison to, to Aguero, which is the best piece of football commentary that has ever been done, ever. Really? Yes, yes, yes. Um, largely because of the eight-second pause 
that he leaves after he finishes saying Aguero. And I, in my mind, I can see him putting his hand over his co-commentator, I think it was Alan Smith's microphone, as in, don't say anything, because we can't say anything that is as good as what's happening now. And then him saying... I like that so much because Martin Tyler is somebody who at this point has been involved in football for 50 years at any level you can name from regional journalist to assistant manager of a non-league club so he's seen pretty much everything so if he's telling you that you'll never see anything like this again then you can believe what he says and I just thought it was the most pitch perfect piece of commentary that, that there has ever been certainly in the Premier League I'm Jose Mourinho I know a thing or two about being special. Getting a road named after you in your hometown, special. Winning the little jackpot on Paddy Power Games, not special. Understood, Jose. Yes, someone wins an average £40,000 jackpot every single day. So if you win, don't think you're special. Daily jackpots by Paddy Power Games. Jackpots must be awarded by 11pm and vary from day to day. Jackpot is shared with other operators available on selected games. T's and C's at paddypower.com, 18plusbegumbleware.org. On Spotify, smart speaker and podcast platforms everywhere, this is the Totally Football Show from Muddy Knees Media. All right then, on to the Manchester sides, which is why we're really looking at this season. Man United and Manchester City, who are looking for the title after 44 years. They had Roberto Mancini at the helm. They had a phenomenal side. Vincent Company was there already, Yaya Torre, David Silva as well. Edin Dzeko, Mario Balotelli, who at the time seemed... Yes, a, a roller coaster of emotions on and off the field, but also a phenomenal player. And that summer they added Sergio Aguero, who in his debut season in England scored 30 goals in all competitions. I'm almost forgetting they had briefly Carlos Tevez too. Yeah, he was playing sort of behind Aguero, wasn't he? Aguero, who, as you say, James, got 30 goals, didn't get in the PFA Team of the Year, which is um, pretty much standard for Aguero. Um, Rooney and Van Persie got in there ahead of him. I had a look um, earlier at the at the side that, that City started with in that last game against QPR, and I put them up against um, the side that City started against Man United at Old Trafford in their last Premier League game, but I swapped out... De Bruyne are in for Phil Foden, and I've got the 2012 team actually beating the uh, 2020 version of City. I think I think they are slightly better man for man, which mm-hmm. means that I'm just turning off my notifications on Twitter. <laughs> I think they had uh, partly, I think, purely human nature. The fact that they were sold as this noisy neighbours, and they were still as unfathomable as it is now. They were still kind of the underdogs, even though they had so much money and so many good players, purely because they hadn't. You know, they hadn't won a Premier League title before and it was their big aim to knock Manchester United off that perch that, you know, that Liverpool had tried to do as well. And the thing that stuck out for me that season was the number of big performances from big players at big times. You know, I, I think, and I've said it before, but I think Vincent Company is vastly overrated as a central defender in terms of his ability. But that pure big game, big moment, you know, the winner against Manchester United in the 1-0 towards the end of the season that effectively gives them the, the home straight to the title. It just felt along that run-in that it was semi-scripted for them. It felt like every time they needed someone, someone stepped up. And obviously, as we've discussed in the final moments of the final game, Sergio Aguero does exactly that. Dan Campios, even as a City fan, I feel like I never got the full story over the bizarre mid-season rift between Tevez and Mancini and never understood how it was patched up. Does the panel have any insight? 
Tevez is unhappy with with not being in the team every week. Mancini was unhappy with the you know his attempt at player power, I think. And there was that incident against Bayern Munich, I think it was, when he was very unhappy being on the bench. He was kind of basically arsing around on the bench and Mancini was not happy with that. I, I think it's probably fair to say that both personalities clashed and both were sizable personalities. Um, but Tevez pretty quickly understood that Manchester City were bigger than him and that Mancini was quite happy to leave, you know, leave him in the cold if he didn't want to play and he would get a worse move because of it. So I think that's probably why Tevez came back in default pretty quickly. If you're going to pick out other standout moments from the campaign, Michael, I imagine one would be the, the derby win at Old Trafford in October of that, of that season. Lovely ball for Milner. And it's come to... I mean, 6-1 was an absolutely incredible result, especially at Old Trafford. It was a funny game. I mean, City were unquestionably the better side. I think Silva and James Milner were excellent in that game. I remember Michael Richards from right back overlapping really well. 6-1, I think, was a bit of a, a flattering reflection of the game. Really, what happened was City were deservedly two or, or three ahead. United had gone down to 10 men when, when Johnny Evans went off. And United did what? Ferguson always asked United to do when they were down to 10 men, which was, by and large, keep on playing as, as he wanted to from the outset and try and get back in the game. And there's been so many terms for Manchester United over the years when that's paid off. You know, you can look at that Giggs goal in the 99 semi-final when United were down to 10 men against Arsenal. This was an occasion where it went the other way and City scored, I think, three goals in stoppage time or after the 89th minute. Um, so, yeah, obviously, from City's perspective, after the final day, that was their their big result of the season. I think the funny thing is... You know, to to kind of reiterate what I just said, United didn't play that badly in that game. When United did play really badly was the 1-0, three games from the end of the campaign. Because United were in that funny kind of situation that so often seems to trip up teams where they didn't need to win. A draw would have been fine. I think they went there kind of hoping to get a 0-0. They played unusually really, really defensively. Um, I remember Park Ji-sung being asked to do like a man-marking job on Yaya Toure. And we've seen Park, or we had seen Park do that kind of thing on someone like Andrea Pirlo, for example. But Toure was obviously a completely different player to play against. And and Park just kind of kept on being almost pushed over by Toure when he dribbled forward. And I think I'm right in saying United didn't have a shot or a shot on target in that game. So from Ferguson's perspective, you know, I think that was really where where United let themselves down rather than the 6-1, which was, I think, just one of those things. Right. Although the 6-1 did effectively hand City that enormous goal difference with which they were able to, to win the title. Going back to that game, Indy Boonen uh, cites the first-time volleyed pass from David Silva uh, for Edin Dzeko's goal as the best assist in Premier League history. It certainly takes some beating. It is. It's up there with Fabregas uh, for Chelsea away at Burnley. Monday night, first weekend of the 14-15 season. But I think the silver one, the way he cushions it, probably just just pips it. My favourite is uh, Dimitar Berbatov for Ronaldo for Manchester United, where he's kind of running towards the touchline against West Ham and he, he does this pirouette and flicks the ball through a defender's legs in kind of one move. And then just Berbatov S lights a cigar, waits a couple of minutes and just plays the ball across the front of goal. That's my favourite. All right. Uh, in other respects, that was the, the Mario Balotelli Why Always Me game, the, the, the sixth one. He scored, what, two goals in that? But after the, the, the first of them, as opposed to his usual non-celebration celebration, just lifted up his shirt to show the Why Always Me T-shirt. This was the day after the firework incident in his bathroom. Mm. 
because it was the same season. I, don't, I can't remember if it was the fireworks in the bathroom or his mum sending him out to buy an iron and, uh, and an ironing board and him coming back with a quad bike, a scale electric set and a trampoline. Uh, with that, at the risk of over-analysis, and I'm probably long-jumping way over the line, I wonder if that really helped Manchester City to have a player like that who was so inadvertently or otherwise happy to hog that limelight and that newspaper scrutiny while everyone else just kind of... The rest of that City team, you know, the David Silva, Sergio Aguero, Yaya Torre to an extent, certainly Vincent Company, are all kind of quiet operators. They're not screamers, really. I know Company was captain, but I wonder if that actually that really helped just having this bizarre character to take up every single back page whenever anything happened. That's probably the first time Balotelli has ever been accused of improving team spirit and harmony. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> but, it, I mean, at the time, I, I said this before, he seemed, when he came through in Italy, he, he was going to be the next absolutely colossal world player. But even at this point at Man City, he did still seem like there was just so much talent to come from him. And it's a shame when you look at where, you know, where he is now struggling to get a game at Brescia or where he was before the season halted. Yeah, and he, it, it wasn't just the sort of exuberance off the pitch. He did deliver in this season. I know he only got the one assist, which um, which we all know uh, which goal that was for. But but there was a goal that he scored, and it was from virtually on the goal line during this season. I think it was against Norwich, where he just flicks it in with his shoulder and makes it look like the easiest thing in the world. And, and you know, there aren't many other players who would think about doing that, let alone pull it off. And he was brilliant at penalties. I mean, City 2020 would love to have him on penalties. He just... Never ever missed, as far as I can remember. I've always thought the thing about Balotelli is, is for good and bad, he he doesn't care that much about football. So, you know, I think his mentality has been questioned in terms of his professionalism and training. But I think there's also been positive aspects to it because, you know, as Matt says, he's brilliant at penalties. I just don't think he's that bothered if he misses the penalty. He doesn't have the nerves. And another example of that was this summer, you know, 2012, where he had that great semi-final. A display yeah. against Germany when Italy won against the odds and I think it's his second goal he's he's one-on-one with the goalkeeper I assume was Neuer and he just spanks it in the top corner and you just you don't see players finish one, one-on-ones like that because there's a good chance it goes wrong and you'll look absolutely ridiculous for wasting your best opportunity of the game but he just didn't seem to care the consequence of missing so yeah uh, I, I really enjoy watching him I, I think uh, one thing that often gets forgotten is City lost 1-0 away at Arsenal about five or six games from the end of the season when Mikel Arteta scored the winner and Balotelli got sent off late in that game. And I think I'm remembering this right, but I was in the press conference afterwards and I'm sure Mancini basically said, I'm not sure he's going to play for City again. And that was, I think, a three-game ban he got with five games of the season remaining. So you're thinking, you know, we thought City were out of the title race at that point. We thought we'll probably never see him again. And then he pops up with, as Matt says, the, the biggest assist in Premier League history. He's also one for our occasional series of I forgot he played for them. I was just thinking then, Mario Balotelli played for Liverpool for a bit, didn't he? That seems like uh, a, an odd blip in his career. Now, Man United had set the pace early on in this season with such famous victories as that 8-2 over Arsenal. But after the derby demolition that was the 6-1, uh, it was City who led all the way through to March. In March... Mancini's team had a run of only five points from five games, which kind of handed the initiative back to Sir Alex Ferguson. And indeed, with six games to go, they had a lead of eight points. And pains me to say this, it being Sir Alex and that, but they blew it. They bottled it. Uh, the most famous moment on this downward trajectory was the game against Everton at Old Trafford. United were 2-0 up at half time, and then 4-2 up with eight minutes to go, but somehow contrived to draw 4-4 
with David Moyes' toffees. Neville finds Marouane Fellaini, who's given them a scare once. It's Pino! And can you really credit it? It is 4-4! This extraordinary title race takes another unbelievable twist! That was potentially a result that swayed to Alex Ferguson on David Moyes' suitability for his job when he left, because I remember it now. It was it was absolutely remarkable, because from everything we knew about Manchester United, whether you grew up in the 80s or the 90s, this just didn't happen. They didn't do this. They didn't allow these things to slip when they had complete control of the situation. And you saw the players at the end, and it was exactly the same look as on the faces they had at Sunderland when they realised that Manchester City had done it. It was it was this kind of disbelief that they'd lost control of something that they'd had in their hands because Manchester United didn't do this. It was it was Newcastle or it was Arsenal. Other clubs did this, not them. And I mean, Ferguson leaves a year later and probably was ready to do so by then. But I think this damaged him in terms of uh, how long he would have stayed for. I think if they win the title that season, maybe he sticks around a little longer or maybe he leaves even that summer. But he leaves a different manager, I think. I think it really hurt him. Um, One of the random things about United's 2011-12 that that I'd sort of forgotten about was Paul Scholes just coming out of retirement and and there being (laughs) no fanfare about it at all. It um, It was a cup tie away at Man City and there'd been no whispers in the press or anything. And then the team sheets dropped and number 22 P Scholes was on the bench and and that kind of you know looking at it maybe slightly in a revisionist way but that makes you think Fergie was searching for something that he sensed wasn't there for the for the final stage of uh, of the season for his team because it it seemed so random and you know Scholes did okay as he did but but it was a really really bizarre thing I, I seem to remember you know just oh Paul Scholes is back playing football again yeah, I remember it the same as Matt. It just being announced by the team sheet being revealed, which I guess is a brilliantly Skulls way of doing things. I mean, I guess part of the background is on New Year's Eve, um, United lost 3-2 at Blackburn. I think this was a game that Rooney missed because there'd been a, something like there was a video or something of him drinking or partying on Christmas or Boxing Day. And there was some squabble that meant he got left out. And as a related uh, consequence, I think United played a central midfield two of... Rafael, as in the Brazilian right back, and Park Ji Sung, which was just a remarkably weak central midfield pairing. So, yeah, 10 days later, it was a big surprise that Paul Scholes emerged from retirement. But when you look at that Blackburn team sheet, maybe there's uh, an explanation why. The, the other thing that, for, you know, the other reason why Ferguson noticed some weakness is that this was a bizarre season in that Manchester United and Manchester City were kind of neck and neck for the title at the end. Um, but both were absolutely dismal in European competition. You know, United had finished behind Benfica and Basel in the Champions League group and then lost both legs to Athletic Bilbao in the Champions in the Europa League. And City, albeit in a tougher group, had gone out to Bayern and Napoli and then lost to Sporting in the Europa League. So it's really odd looking back now because that, that was my favourite season of Premier League football and you kind of assume it was two powerhouses going at it because that's how your mind works. But actually, they were really, really weak in Europe. The 4-4 draw with Everton had left Manchester City only three points behind United, a gap which they then closed in the next game, which was the derby at the Etihad. Into the final day we go with the two teams level on points. City, though, with plus eight in goal difference. United were at Sunderland. All City had to do was beat strugglers' QPR at home, which should have been simple. As much as the action on the pitch... I remember this afternoon as being about watching the words spreading one way and the other through the crowd at, at the Stadium of Light. Rooney puts United 1-0 up early doors and, and then they've kind of done what they need to do. And then it's all about hearing what's happening 
across the what Pennines would it be? But over in in Manchester, Zabaleta puts City in front, and United fans are looking down downcast. But then shortly after half time, Jubal Cisse equalises for QPR and, and, and there's hope again. But then another twist, QPR go down to 10 men after Joey Barton gets caught up in probably the most spectacular red card ever. He elbows Carlos <laughs> Tevez, knees Aguero and tries to headbutt Vincent Company on, on his way off the pitch. And City now against 10-man QPR will surely retake the lead. No, it's QPR who score. And all of a sudden you've got celebrations at the Stadium of Light because Man City are doing it again and Mancini's running onto the pitch and telling his own players to... <laughs> yeah, I love the um, shots of the United supporters once the final whistle goes at City as well. There's one woman who's singing, we love United, yes we do, and then the news comes through and her arms kind of sadly go down behind her side. Meanwhile, oh. side of the pitch, you've got Fergie screaming at the fourth official because the fourth official doesn't know if it's full-time in another game 100 miles away. And then sort of trying to usher his players over to the away support to go and clap them, changing his mind frantically waving his hands about it's pretty glorious equally there's a man city fan you you'll see who's who's beating the, the seats at the etihad with i think his, his his hoodie or something this is even after jecko's pulled one back effectively uh, city had 3 minutes to save their season arvid hansen it says have you ever seen a kickoff like qpr's by the way after the city equalizer i still think it was part of the deciding moment they basically told city here is the ball just sticking your eye, they basically just hoof it downfield and then City bring it forward. Yeah, I mean, the, so the backstory to that, I think, is it's worth remembering that QPR went into this game thinking they had to get a result to stay up. Um, they were pretty much up against Bolton for the last relegation place. By the time of Dzeko's equaliser, they, or maybe just after that in the aftermath, they've been told supposedly from the bench that Bolton had not won and therefore QPR were going to stay up. So it's almost like they just switched off after that goal. And, you know, from speaking to a couple of friends who are QPR fans and who were up at the Etihad for this one, because the fans knew that they were safe, a lot of them just celebrated the Aguero goal just because it was so dramatic and so incredible. They thought, might as well go mad for this. So, yeah, you wonder whether, you know, that goal would have happened had had Bolton not conceded an equaliser and if, uh, yeah, if QPR still needed to get a result. James, you, you opened the section talking about fans in the stand and having message passed to them I think the other interesting thing is that this was pretty much the first season where Twitter was a massive thing in the UK by May 2012 when this game was played they just announced 10 million Twitter users in the UK which I think would more than doubled from the start of the season so I think it's really interesting I think we also saw the rise of related to that the rise of, of football tribalism this this season with the the Suarez racism case but I thought it was really interesting how this was the first time where you could see kind of fans scrolling on their phones looking for information about what was happening at different games it wasn't the radio to the ear it was literally just sitting on Twitter scrolling to find out scores well there you go then they'd had 43 shots Man City that afternoon against struggling QPR with the 44th they finally took the lead and with it the title Balotelli lays it off to him and, and you think that 93 minutes and 20 seconds into the last game of the season, needing a goal, you just wallop it first time. But because he is, you know, the the brilliant striker that he is, he takes a touch to make a better angle for himself and then puts it in. And to, to have the coolness of thought to do that in that situation is, is pretty impressive. Mm-hmm. 
as a football fan, I'm not speaking for everyone, but I might be in that I don't really get jealous of fans of other clubs that are hugely successful, but I I am jealous of moments that fans get. And I mean, it must be very odd to be a Manchester City fan knowing that it could never be beaten. You know, if you're 15 years old um, in 2012 when that goal goes in, you know that nothing is ever going to beat that, which is a very odd feeling to have, I suspect, as a football supporter. I, I can hope that my own club will have better moments than they have in my lifetime, but Manchester City fans can never really have that. Amazing moment for the Premier League, isn't it? You know, Richard mm-hmm. Scudamore, I'm sure, enjoyed it as much as anybody <laughs> else. That That is the ultimate selling point. In this league, the title can be decided between two of the biggest rivals in the division from the same city with the last kick of the ball in the season to settle the league on goal difference. Um, you know, it's, it's obviously highly unlikely to ever happen again, but that's like on the front of the poster to sell the Premier League to overseas rights holders or, you know, sovereign wealth with questionable human rights records or whatever you like. (laughs) Any of the above. Well, very, very nice indeed. That was the 2011-2012 season. We'll not see its like very much, the message there. Anything else you want to add in terms of memories from that most remarkable campaign? Yeah, one that you know could have been horrible, but turned out to be one of the most remarkable stories in football in recent years. I think was um, Fabrice Mwamba having uh, a cardiac arrest on the pitch at White Hart Lane in an FA Cup tie between Spurs and Bolton. Um, amazingly, Spurs fan Dr. Andrew Dina, who was the consultant cardiologist at the London Chess Hospital, was watching the game with his brothers. Managed to persuade some stewards to let him onto the pitch and, and played a big part in, in keeping Mwamba alive. Um, told the ambulance to go to a hospital in Bethnal Green rather than North London because he knew that they had um, sort of more specialist equipment to, to help keep him alive. But his, his heart stopped beating for 78 minutes and he managed to survive it. it I remember wow. watching it at the time and it was, you know, dread to think what it had been like being in the crowd, but watching it on TV was harrowing enough. But, but for him to be able to survive and, you know, be fit and well to this day is... Um, it's a strange moment. Obviously, you don't really know how to define it as, as something, you know, just shocking or, or brilliant in the end or horrific, but it is certainly something which stands out from that season. Mm-hmm. And equally, his return to the pitch to receive the applause of, of Bolton fans later on in that season after making a pretty miraculous recovery was another of the, the season's most uh, emotional moments. All right, then we'll be uh, looking back at more Premier League excitements of yesteryear in a week's time on the Totally Football Show on Thursday, of course, we'll be doing retro Euro stuff. We're up to the 97-98 campaign. But we're not done with today's show. Far from it, because next up, we go again with the Intertotally Cup to the General Knowledge Round. Quiz part two, everybody. Sasha, are you there? I'm back, yes. Welcome back, Carl. You're also with us again? Oh, yeah. Brilliant. All right, the situation is that Carl scored a whopping five out of five in his specialist knowledge round, uh, meaning that he has a two-point lead currently over Sasha Gurionov. Sasha, it's going to take a massive general knowledge round from you. Ready, ready, ready as I'll ever be. All right, well, Carl, you take uh, first go at the general knowledge questions. Here's question one. How many consecutive league titles have Celtic won in this current run? Nine. I'm afraid the answer is eight. Question two. What do these teams have in common? Borussia Mönchengladbach, Club Bruges, Real Madrid, Roma, Milan and Tottenham. Uh, they're all based in the capital city of their respective clubs? Uh, the uh, nations that's, even? No, that's, that's not the answer I have here. 
Uh, the teams that Liverpool has beaten in European Cup or Champions League finals. Oh, Question three then. Megan Rapino was first and Alex Morgan was third. But who was second in last year's women's Ballon d'Or? I want to say Sam Kerr. Is that what you're saying? I'm saying Sam Kerr. It's Lucy Bronze. Oh, boy. I think probably the name confused you there. (laughs) Question four then, and these now are getting crucial. Before Harry Kane, who was the last Englishman to finish top scorer of the Premier League? Wow. Um. Before Harry Kane, who was the last Englishman to be top scorer in the Premier League? Wayne Rooney. No, it was Kevin Phillips in the year 2000. Wow. goodness. Question five, Carl. Which of Zlatan Ibrahimovic's nine clubs has he made the most appearances for? A little bit fiendish. This is a fiendish one. Uh, so let's let's disclude Galaxy and Manchester United immediately. He spent quite a lot of no AC Milan was a little bit Inter Milan was on a short break because of blah blah blah. I'm gonna say no. I'm gonna I'm gonna say Paris Saint Germain. And you're correct. Wow. A point then from the general knowledge could be a crucial point. Remember, you have that two-point lead from the specialist knowledge round, which means, adding things up, you've scored six points out of ten. Sasha, you need three correct answers to pull level and force a tiebreak, or four, if you can, to go straight through to the quarterfinals. Are you ready? Yes, and I feel I have a lifeline here. I feel it. Oh, boy. Question one. Who contested the first Champions League or European Cup final between two teams from the same country? Back in the 50s, Real Madrid, uh, Barcelona? No, that's incorrect. It actually happened in the year 2000. Real Madrid and Valencia. Oh, I completely misunderstood the question. Oh, Oh, I'm sorry about that. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Okay. Question two. What is the next stadium in this sequence? Wembley in London, De Coip in Rotterdam, Estadio da Luz in Portugal, Ernst Happel Stadion in Vienna, the Olympic Stadium in Kiev, and... So, next stadium in this sequence. Wembley mm-hmm. in London, the Coip in Rotterdam, Estadio da Luz in Portugal, the Ernst Happel Stadion in Vienna, and then the Olympic Stadion in Kiev, and then where? Uh, Stade de France. That's correct. They're the venues for the last six European Championship finals. Two more correct answers needed. Megan Rapino, Alex Morgan, and which other player finished joint top scorers at the Women's World Cup last year? Megan Rapino, Alex Morgan, and which other player finished joint top scorers at the Women's World Cup last year? Hmm. I'm going to say Sam Kerr. Well, you also would be incorrect with Sam Kerr. It's Ellen White. Okay. Ugh, yes. <laughs> Can only force a tiebreaker. Now, what yeah. links, question four, what links Alan Shearer's two Premier League top scorers in 95-96 and 96-97 and Robin Van Persie's two top scorer titles in 2011-12 and 2012-13? Achieved at different clubs. That is correct. Consecutive years, but different teams. Question five, then, to force a tiebreaker. Who are the current holders of the Copa Libertadores? Mm, Flamengo. Boo. Is correct. Whoa. 
unlike my pronunciation of Libertadores. Sorry about that. Uh, well done, Sasha and Carl. He's come back at you, forcing us into a tiebreaker. Now, after a little bit of controversy over Jack Lang's Emma Saunders plus one in our last <laughs> round, uh, we're going to ask you both to text your answer to me. And the closest one or the first correct answer that arrives at my uh, at my address first uh, will go through to the quarterfinal. So, uh, yeah, hang on. Let me just make a contact as I've just written that down because obviously my hands are shaking. shaking. <laughs> I'm, I'm absolutely nerves are shredded here. The closest one or the first correct one which arrives will take a place in the quarterfinals. So your tiebreaker question then, Carr and Sasha, is in which year was the away goals rule introduced in the Champions League or European Cup? In which year was the away goals rule introduced in the European Cup or Champions League? They had replays, didn't they, for a bit? They had third matches, didn't they? No, that was South America. Carl sent his answer in, Sasha. Uh, uh, okay, let's go for this one. Right. Sasha uh, and Carl have now answered. Carl, you've answered 1973. And Sasha, you've answered 1959. The answer is 1967. Oh. Carl wins. Carl wins. (laughs) Carl, that's extraordinary. Despite that amazing collapse in the general knowledge round, you take a place in the quarterfinals. Take it from the hands of Sasha Gurionov. Curtains for me, James. Curtains. Wow. Crikey. That was extraordinary drama in, in, in that second round. Many thanks to you both for uh, taking part and uh, look forward to speaking to you again soon on The Totally Show. Commiserations there, Sasha. Brilliant comeback. Thank you, James. Good luck, Carl. I'm just going to go and cry for a bit for my country, for myself. <laughs> just wow. Six out of ten and he's through to the quarterfinals when you think of poor Emma Saunders yep, 9 out of 10 and <laughs> sitting watching this at home yeah. um, on the on the basis of Carl's specialist subject right. can I change mine to this podcast that we've just recorded <laughs> <laughs> very funny Matt well we'll be canvassing your specialist subjects if you go through uh, to the quarterfinals but of course that all depends on what happens on Thursday when you and Michael are going to be toe-to-toeing it and of course so whoever does go through from that match will be facing Carl Anker and possibly fancying their chances in the quarterfinals. Yeah, sounds like a good draw for Michael. Um, I think I said, I honestly thought Sasha was a real favourite for this competition. His yeah, football same. knowledge, especially his general football knowledge, is absolutely incredible. So that's a big upset for me. Right. I mean, I think poor Chappie was slightly undone by the question asking what we called one of the uh, USSR players. Yes, that, that Iron in, Curtain has literally <laughs> knocked him out. Amazing. <laughs> Pretty sure they didn't call anyone the Iron Curtain in Russia, where Sasha probably was at the time. But there you go. That was his special subject, you know. So, uh, anyway, well, really looking forward. I think everybody is, uh, Matt and Michael, to seeing how you two get on in the Intertotally Cup on Thursday. When, as I mentioned, we'll also be looking back at Champions League Season 6 and there'll be lots of other excitements as well. I do hope you'll be uh, joining us for that. There's also, let me mention, a new Golazzo out, the first of a two-parter, looking at the parallel world of Italy's ultras. So all sorts of uh, insight and uh, interesting stories in that one with our very special guest, Tobias Jones, uh, who handily is the author of the book Ultras. Excellent. 
Uh, that's it for today, though. Michael, Matt, Daniel, anything you want to add before we wrap it up? Uh, totally Football League show on Wednesday will be, or Sam and Adrian will be compiling their League Two team of the season, amongst other things. Oh, nice one. Uh, could I just say that in uh, research for this pod, I was looking at Manchester City squad and there's some incredible names who played a part in that season. So if you're ever on an episode of Pointless and the subject is Manchester City 2011-12, you can have the likes of uh, Wayne Bridge, David Pizarro, Adam Johnson uh, and Owen Hargreaves, which I definitely would not have got. <laughs> wow. Owen Hargreaves. Extraordinary. Daniel? No, I can't top that. All right, then. Not this time anyway but you'll be back next Sunday stroke Monday for another edition of the Totally Football Show. Listener, have a great time till we next speak to you from all of us here. It's goodbye. You've been listening to the Totally Football Show, a Muddy Knees Media production. For sales and advertising, please email sales at muddykneesmedia.com. Keep up to date with everything across our Totally Football Network at The Totally Show on Twitter and make sure you check out our brand new website too, thetotallyfootballshow.com. Muddy Knees Media.